House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren, and uh, I'm in the co-pilot co chair, we've got Mr. David <laughs> Martino. I am here. You are here. Yeah. Here. Well, Present. you know, well... <laughs> somebody's got somebody's got to do this, you know. I don't, That's right. I'm having a struggle here, so I'm just like, <laughs> my God. Anyway, so uh, another great uh, show today, and uh, follow up to Mr. Dean Coons. Mm -hmm. um, so today we are talking in suspense thriller and uh, with Mr. Paul Biddick. Thank you for being here, Paul. Thank you for having me, and it's great to follow Dean Coons. Yeah. Now, Paul, last time we had you on, you were doing the coldest. Warrior, um, which was great. Uh, I loved that book. I loved the, uh, the even the show that I saw about it. Now, now you've got a new book called uh, The Matchmaker, and there's a spy in Berlin, and it's out February first here. Um, so, let's let's talk about the premise of the book a little bit. Like, what is the storyline? The storyline um, is uh, there's a young woman, an American, who's a translator who finds herself living in Berlin in 1989, and um, she's married to an East German. Uh, she had a bad marriage and then met this, you know, handsome, young, charming East German who was a piano tuner, and um, she... Um, they marry, and the opening of the book, the first chapter, she's waiting for him to return from a business trip to Vienna. And he's late, um, and there's a knock on the door. She answers it, and it's not her husband. It's American from the embassy who says um, that her husband is missing. And um, it quickly um comes to pass that he is considered, he's thought to be drowned. And from that um, death um, unfold a whole series of revelations around who the husband really is, uh, what he had been doing. And uh, <laughs> I, won't, I won't spoil the book, but it's a series of uh, sort of unwrapping uh, the mysteries that, you know, lead to a whole series of thriller-like events and moments um, between the Stasi, the East German spies, the American CIA, and this young woman who finds herself, to some extent, caught up in the intrigues of others and has to discover the answer to, you know, uh, you know the, the mystery of her husband in order to get off the hook herself. I noticed that, okay, so you really like the Cold War and, and that sort of timing and, and, and uh, Berlin Wall falling and stuff like that. Is that something personal to you about that, or is it just something you're really interested in? Well, uh, I grew up as a child in the Cold War, as we all did, or many of us did, and it was this dark shadow over our lives. And the Soviet Union was a nuclear threat. And uh, I remember as a child, we would be asked to do bomb drills where you um, hide under your desk at school with the idea that somehow that would protect you from a nuclear blast. Um, and, and, but it was this shadow and, and it was, it was Kennedy at the Berlin Wall. It was Nikita Khrushchev, you know, pounding his shoe at the UN. And, and then what happened in the course of the 80s is that this the behemoth, this threat, the Soviet Union, that it crumbled and collapsed on its own. And that was a remarkable event to have this threat that you lived with, you know, for 50 years suddenly dissipate, vanish. Um, and the irony today is that uh, with Putin and the Ukraine, we're, we're sort of li reliving some of that anxiety. Um, but in any case, the Cold War was, uh, you know, helped shape my view of the world uh, as a young man. And, um, and, and, and that's what's drawn me back to that period in time. And when we talk about some of the things like, you know, um, MK Ultra or, 
anything like that. What What's your thoughts on that? Because right now, in today's date, there's a lot of people that think that um, it's not true, it never happened, and, and that's probably because of all the conspiracies and that, that really kind of um, take it out of proportion because, you know, you get... You know, every time something happens in the country, it was um, MK Ultra. You know, or it was a code word. You know, like Hillary called them on the phone and he shot everyone. Like, there's I hear all these things, and um, and I think so. There's kind of a, a disbelief in this sort of thing. Where where do you stand in that? Well, we live in a uh, a world where there's social media. Um, accelerates uh, and expands upon rumors and myths and misinformation. Um, and I, I think it's incumbent upon anybody who wants to dig into things to try and get, um, a, you know, a, a version, a historical version of um, what might have happened in the CIA in the 50s. And MK, MK Ultra was, in fact, a program that was developed by the United States. Um, and uh, a guy named Sidney Gottlieb was in charge of it. And it, it grew out of the paranoias of the 1950s. One of the paranoias was that the Soviet Union had uh, developed various different drug programs that uh, would allow it to basically kidnap American personnel, either military or political, drug them and then take from them the secrets that would in some ways jeopardize the United States. So MK Ultra was sort of our reaction to the fear that that was a program that the Soviets were doing. And it was basically testing drugs that were truth telling uh, on in either witting or unwitting individuals. Um, but the history of MKUltra, MK you know, is there available to be read. Um, and it's, it, it really was a, product, it was a product of that time. Well, is Hillary Clinton using it now? or? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what Hillary is doing. I haven't heard much about her since she lost the election many years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's just kind of, you see, there's, there's just a lot of people that talk in this area. Um, where do you come up with storyline behind something like, like this in this setting of the Cold War? Well, I decided I want to set the novel in Berlin. Um, partly Berlin, uh, you know, through a 50-year period of time, basically from Kristallnacht, which is in 1938, I believe, up until the fall of the wall, was the uh, the one place where the East and West met in in the Cold War conflict, and there were spies running around in on both sides, and Berlin was sort of the the well that um, you know from which people sort of were taking their secrets. Khrushchev called uh, Berlin the swampland of spies. Um, so I was drawn to it for that same reason that many other writers are drawn to it. Um, it was a place where the you know the, the intersection of East and West, um, the Warsaw, Warsaw Pact, and NATO. Uh, and in the course of my research, I came across the autobiography of Marcus Wolf, who was the head of counterintelligence um, for Stasi, which was the East German um, secret agency. And he's a he was a brilliant guy in many respects, highly regarded by his adversaries in you know, MI6 and the CIA. And he developed um, a form of you know, what we'll call lovecraft as opposed to tradecraft. Um, you know, the honeypots and you know, different ways in which sex is used to undermine spies has always been a part of um, uh, intelligence services. But he took that one step further. Um, and he made uh, Lovecraft into tradecraft. Um, and, and what he did was uh, trained young East German men to move to the West to find vulnerable young women who had um, positions in government agencies 
potentially with access to secrets, um, to romance them, um, to find out where they were vulnerable. Some of them were vulnerable, vulnerable because they had drinking problems or money problems or love problems. And they groomed these young women and in many cases married these young women. And these young women then became their covers for their covert activity in West Germany. And um, in some cases, uh, after the GDR fell, these women um, you know, discovered for the first time that the man that they had been married to for five years or 10 years was an East German spy. And you can imagine that that's a pretty... It's a pretty terrible thing to discover about somebody that you were married to that you thought you loved, and suddenly uh, the, the the deception is revealed. That, to me, was an interesting premise for a story. The woman who discovers her husband is an East German spy who has another family in East Germany, a son, a wife. Well, how do you deal with that? And And can you... Love somebody who's deceived you, betrayed you um, in that way. And that was my interest. I was really interested in this woman, Ann Simpson, and how she would deal with this discovery. Well, how do you get into her head then? How do you get into how she would uh, do it? Um, because the time frame, too, of being years ago and, and how someone would be living and thinking um, how do you find yourself getting into that um, character? I'd, I'd never written um, a novel from a woman's point of view before, but obviously this novel had to be written from a woman's point of view. And I, I you know, I, I, under, I have understood, being a reader of a lot of wonderful books, that books aren't really written, um, you know, by, based on gender, you know, uh, I mean, to give you an example, Wuthering Heights, which is a brilliant book with this wonderful male character, Heathcliff, was written by a young woman. And Anna Karenina, a wonderful woman, uh, fictional character, was written by a middle-aged Russian. So, you know, the question becomes, how does anybody put their, you know, create a character that may be of the opposite gender and um, and give them, you know, that breathe life into who they are. And in my case, I looked at her motivations and I looked at the, the situation she was in and her fears and her, you know, needs. Uh, and I began to shape that person around that, the context uh, that she was in, the demands that were being placed on her and and found in her somebody who, had discovered her own, what I'll call agency, um, her own, you know, courage to confront um, the, the men around her who were trying to, you know, push her in one way or another way. And, and so she evolved, in my mind, from somebody who was a victim to somebody who becomes a dispenser of justice in the very end. But again, it was just looking at you know, the basic qualities of character, who you are, uh, what you, how do you react to a situation? And in some ways, you, you pull those emotions out of your own background, or you pull it, in my case, out of, you know, to some extent, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Subtle influence on all of my, uh, all of my work. Well, to go a little deeper, do you have, uh, when, you, when you're writing your characters, do you have an inner monologue? Can you hear your characters in your mind? Are you transcribing? Is that how that works for you? I, there, there comes a point, I, I do a lot of outlining. I spend, you know, six months of research outlining. I create dossiers on the characters, and I try to understand the world that I'm about to embark on. And and then I begin to write. And what I discover is that notwithstanding all the stuff that I had done, all the research, all the dossiers I've written, that at some point in the writing, the character begins to take over. The character begins to guide where the story is going to go. Um, because at each point, inflection point, the character has to do one thing or a different thing. 
and 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 obviously I'm there. The pen is in my hands, but the character is in my head, and I am imagining where that character needs to go in order to be um, you know truthful to who that person is. And, and so it is definitely you know allowing a character to sort of emerge and and take hold of the story that is being told. Well, in that vein, has have you ever had a character um, do something that surprised you, kind of just went their own way, didn't want to go along with uh, the outline or the plot? Has that ever happened? Um, I wouldn't say so much that the character rebelled against the plot. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 hasn't happened, but. There have been moments where the character has done something that surprised me. So in this novel, there's a, a moment in time where the, the woman, Ann Simpson, is at the river, uh, and they're looking for her husband's body. And there's a, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Knapp, who's sort of a, a natalie-dressed um, older man, doctor, who um, she finds offensive. He wears a toupee. And, you know, the line is that his character is as false as the hair on his head. Um, and at one point, as she's looking at him, she says to her, she wants to, to take, you know, her a hand of a handful of dirt, mud, and basically rub it into his jacket because she can't stand the fact that he is so, you know, properly dressed, uh, and but yet repulsive. Um, so that that act, although she doesn't, do that she doesn't do it she has the instinct to do it that came out of that moment where that this young woman ann simpson is having a revulsive reaction to this character and it wasn't you know that just happened and that's the sort of surprise that is interesting because it's basically you know the the way that we all are you know we, we don't go around our day planning every single moment we we encounter things on the street or in the car or in the home, and we react. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. and that's the fun, allowing a character to, to breathe, you know, the, and be serendipitous. Um, do you put kind of a subtext or do you have something that you want people to get out of this book besides the actual storyline? Well, yeah, I like to say, uh, like Isaac Singer said that, you know, a book needs to both entertain and to instruct. And so the story, the characters, I hope are entertaining. I hope people enjoy the book. But there's also um, a, what I'll call a, I don't know, message is probably too heavy a way to describe it. But, but I want people to come away and think about some of the things that go on in the book. And, and in this case, um, the, the, the theme is justice. You know, the, this young woman is a victim and her husband becomes a victim. And the CIA decide that this um, Marcus Wolf-like character, who's the head of um, Stasi counterintelligence, um, who is a terrible man, um, it, they decide that he should avoid prison, should avoid prosecution, because he has secrets that the U.S. could use specifically about some old and cold cases. So rather than have him prosecuted, they decide they want to invite him to the U.S. Um, to become, um, you know, a part of the agency and to provide um, the agency with some of the intelligence it's looking for. And she's offended by that, offended that somebody so um, terrible will be let off the hook and and she decides to act on her own and meet out her own form of justice it really isn't that different than what happened after world war ii many of the japanese bioweapons scientists who were basically war criminals were invited to the united states so their intelligence about bioweapons could be used in our own bioweapons programs. And the same was true with Nazi scientists, you know, who were 
who avoided war criminal trials because their intelligence, um, you know, was of interest to the United States military. And so I, I, I like to have characters live in this sort of gray world where the line between right and wrong is very ambiguous. Um, how, how bad were you going to make the husband <laughs> in a story like this? Like How bad? Yeah, like, you know, is he like this major killer and awful person? But the husband isn't so bad. I mean, he's got his own, he's, he's got his own issues. Uh, the, uh, you know, he's, he's a faithful to his son and his wife, and he's trying to escape from the East Germany. And he, you know, is using this woman, Ann Simpson, for his own purposes. Um, so I think all of the characters are, um, you know, ambiguous, have morally ambiguous um, intentions. And, and to me, that's the way the world is. It's very rare that you have somebody who is, you know, uh, an evil person who doesn't have some sort of redeeming quality or or somebody who claims to be, you know, uh, you know, a, a priest who doesn't have some underlying corruption. Um, it, it's the nature of humanity. It's the nature in, in all of us. And that, to me, is the exciting thing about, you know, writing spy novels. You're, you're, you're operating in a world where these um, contradictions are a part of uh, the world they live in. So you think that the... Um... Cold War never really ended. Well, the 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 Cold War between the Soviet Union and the West ended, but the hostilities between authoritarian regimes like Russia today and democracies like England and the United States hasn't ended. Um, that's the tension we feel, I think, in the in the world right now. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of strange. Um, yeah, it almost has uh, the feel of the Cold War, but it definitely more so. I mean, you know, we went through a period uh, after two thousand and one where the Cold War seemed to vanish, and what we had was the War on Terror, and the War on Terror. You know, it's still with us, but the um, adversarial relationship between this Russia and its satellites in the West, obviously, right now, as we're speaking today, is uh, at a peak. And, and, you know, it's it's amazing to even think that, you know, all the news is about the drumbeats of war in the Ukraine, um, because it that feels exactly like, um, you know, Czechoslovakia in 1956. Uh, Cuba in 1959. Yeah. Canada, 2022. <laughs> <laughs> little joke. Um, so so um, you seem to be going into the spy novels a lot. Is this something you're going to continue to do? Uh, yeah. I, I, uh, I really enjoy the characters who you know, live in that world. And, um, and that, and I feel like there's a lot more, um, many more stories that I can tell. Uh, I mean, there's, there's one that is my next novel, which is pretty much done. Not the one that we're talking about now, which is going to be published next week, but the one that I'm just writing. And it's set in Beirut in 2006 during the 34 day war between Israel and Hezbollah. And it's so the novel is really about the war on terror. Um, but it's, uh, it's a fascinating moment. Um, a woman who happens to be what they call non official cover. So she's an agent, but she's not associated with the CIA. So she doesn't get any of the benefits, uh, like diplomatic immunity if she's caught. So that, you know, that to me, the Middle East is a ripe ground for, you know, for more stories about, um, you know, spies, basically. 
Well, you know, you're writing a lot about uh, secrets and, and very dark things. Uh, does that affect you um, when you're not writing? And do you need to, you know, uh, relax and recharge, uh, find a way to uh, kind of get away from that when, when uh, either in between novels or in between chapters? Uh, no, not. It's true. I do write about dark things, but <laughs> but that is the world we're in. You know, it's it's so. I'm just trying to reflect on sort of the real the real world we're in, and in in some ways, it's nice to be in that sort of controlled world because the 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 world of today, America today, with all of its problems, is actually darker <laughs> than my dark novels. <laughs> So I and 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 one of the things that I do, which I enjoy doing, is I introduce a lot of humor into the book. But it's subtle. Mm -hmm. It's it isn't like guffaw humor, but it's it's characters who are clown like or it's jokes because in the in, in the nature of the pacing of a book like mine, you've got to lighten up the reader. They've got to be able to feel that you know there's you know the pacing isn't all. Uh, tense and extreme. Um, so I, I introduced different characters, like this character, Dr. Knapp. He's sort of a, an oddball character, but, you know, I think people will enjoy him and what he says simply because he's um, he's interesting character. I mean, if you look at some of um, Shakespeare's, you know, darkest tragedies, Hamlet, for example, Hamlet's a, a novel in which there are eight killings. Everyone is dead at the end. You know, it's yeah. as good as you can get. But, you know, there's the, the scene with uh, Polonius, you know, and he's a funny character. And so he introduces a lot of wit and humor into a grim story. And then there's the, um, the, the gravedigger. And the grave digging scene mm. is hilarious if you, if you stop to think about it. And the the and that is important for the the pacing of the of the play. Um, so I think one of the things that I enjoy doing is finding ways to insert comedy or clown like characters into the novel to you know allow the pacing of the novel to to proceed um, it, the, and the suspense to sort of uh, you know continue. So who who do you use as an influence? Are there other spy writers that you like? Yes, there are a number that I uh, obviously I'm a big fan of uh, Jean Le Carré, a big fan of mm. Graham Greene, Eric Ambler. Those are sort of classical writers uh, of the contemporary authors. I'm a big fan of Joe Cannon, who's a friend, and uh, he's just a wonderful writer. Um, uh, there's uh, Charles Cumming, who is a wonderful English writer. And uh, there's a young writer, an American by the name of um, David McCluskey, who has one novel out called Damascus Station, which is a wonderful novel. And uh, I think he will I think he will do very well. Um, and it's interesting what one of the. The, the, the novelists that I think of is the sort of the classic spy novelists are all for the most part, all English, because the spy novel has a much longer tradition in England than it does in the United States. And that's partly because, you know, we didn't actually have a secret service until 1947 when the CIA was created. And in, and before then, we were pretty much, you know, a country that didn't live beyond the boundaries um, of, you know, the east and west coast. Whereas England was a, an imperial nation and, uh, and it had India, it had its, you know, troops pretty much everywhere. And, and intelligence is really about gathering information to support, you know, national security decisions by the president or the prime minister. And we didn't have those issues for the most part. So it was only, so, you know, the, the classic spy novelists are for the most part English. And it was only probably in the mid to late 60s that we had our first real spy novels that is of literary quality. And of course, now there are many more. But um, 
it's you know when you when you think about the tradition of writing in the genre it's it's quite different in the UK than it is here now, I was wondering, you know, you made the switch from, you know, being a very successful senior executive in the entertainment industry to writing books. Um, what recommendations would you give someone who's looking to pursue um, their passion full time? Uh, it takes a lot of work, and, mm. and you don't just pick up and do it. I would say <laughs> I was a writer before I was a business executive. It's just that I put my writing on hold in order to have a family and earn an income and do all the things you need to do. And it was only after I was able to financially be independent that I sort of said, I'll go back to being the writer I thought I wanted to be. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it, writing is a calling. It's mm. not, it, it's work, but to, to put up with all the things that it requires, I think uh, it really needs to be a calling. Um, Absolutely. And there are there are people who, you know, many, many writers, uh, well-known writers who, who started writing in their, you know, mid-40s, 50s. In my case, I started, I, I guess I was, I left my job when I was 58 and I've produced now, this is my fifth with the other one who, that's been written, right, written six books in like eight years. Mm. And, and that's a lot of work. Oh, it certainly is. Well, you got to get cracking. You got to get do more. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what do you think of the new um, world of publishing? You know, with Amazon and and all of the different things out there and the internet stuff like that. Are you do you like it or do you sort of not like it or where you stand? Well, the uh, on the you know as for music, you know that's. Probably music and movies more than books have been uh, have changed the an individual's relationship to the either the sound or the picture. Um, and it used to be in it you'd buy a physical disc and you'd have to buy twelve songs, and um, and he only wanted one of them. <laughs> so then you know, and I was the one who did the deal with Steve Jobs, where we said, well, let's let's allow them to buy singles for ninety nine cents. Um, and then they'll own the signal and listen to it. Uh, and then what's happened since then is we've gone from, you know, the album to the single, now to the stream, to the listen. We're down at that atomic level. And, and that's a wonderful thing for consumers. Um, and as it's turned out, it's become a very profitable business for the music companies. Um, and it's changed the way that we listen. Um, and I think it's made it more convenient. You know, for the most part, technology works because it changes your life for the better. And I think people would say that having instant access wherever they are on their phone to whatever music they want to listen to was a good thing. Um, and I think, you know, the same is true with movies. You think about how we can now watch movies at home, high quality movies, not just U.S. broadcast shows, but, you know, you know, 5% from France, um, all the wonderful Israeli and South Korean movies that are now available to us. That's, that's a sort of revolution in taste and in convenience and has, you know, created all sorts of opportunities for the creative community. Books is a little different because reading a book on your Kindle isn't quite the same as having a physical copy of the book in your hands and thumbing it. There's an aesthetic object, the book, which, um, people still enjoy. Um, and so I, it, I think in the publishing business, you know, the Amazons of the world have made it a little more difficult for the publishers because Amazon is the one big behemoth on the distribution chain for ebooks. But, um, um, but I think, you know, the essence is that people like to read stories and writers enjoy writing those stories. And, and, uh, I don't think that has changed. What is your writing structure? So when you sit down to do something like this, how long does it take you? And, and, and are you the type of person that can set aside hours and just go, okay, I'm going to write, you know, nine to five today and just do it? Or do you have to be in a certain mood? Uh, I went to the office every day for, I don't know, 22, 24 years. And that regime, you know, taught me a work ethic, which is the work ethic that I apply to my writing. You know, I, I wake up every every morning and start writing sometime between 7.30 and 8.30. 
And I work for four or five hours. Um, sometimes I get a lot done. Sometimes I get very little done. Sometimes I like what I did and sometimes I don't. But it doesn't really matter because it's the constant application of my effort that ends up in, you know, a novel, you know, 12 or 14 months after I begin it. Um, typically, I start with six months of research and then I do a first draft by hand in the notebook with the same Montbach pen that I've used in each of the novels. Uh, and uh, I, right here, in fact, I'm holding it. And, uh, <laughs> and then I do another draft and another draft. I usually do three or four handwritten drafts. And then the last draft is one that I type into the computer. Um, and in each of those, uh, the drafts get better, the language gets better, um, the pacing gets better, the characters deepen. And when I feel like I have something that is typed and and pretty complete, of course, I think it's 95% complete at that point, but it's probably only 80% complete. My wife reads it and then some other people read it. My agent reads it and then they give me feedback and that leads to a series of changes, edits and, and, uh, and so it's, it's, uh, I would say probably 12 to 14 months um, from one from the start of a project to the end, which is pretty fast, actually. Um, but that's because I do it four or five hours a day. Yeah, you have to put in a lot of time, right, to make it work, you know. It's the, it's the 10, you know, you figure out how many hours, if you do something for five hours a day for 12 months, uh, it's whatever that is, it's about 2,000 hours, a little less than 2,000 hours. It's, it takes that long, and there's no real shortcut. The, that's the, only, the thing I would say to people who think they want to write is that it, what's most important is patience. Um, you can't rush a story. You can't rush a character. You, know, you have to continue with them, and you have to let those characters and those stories emerge. Uh, so that they feel authentic, they feel real. So they feel like there's some truth, you know, that is on the page that entertains and instructs. Do you, when you do your research, do you like to go to the country that you're writing in, or I guess it's tough with COVID, but on a regular basis, do you? Well, I have sort of a complicated view of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I sort of think I should, but then uh, when I wrote the last book, The Mercenary, it was set in Moscow in 1985. And I'd hoped to go to Moscow, but COVID hit and we weren't able to go. And uh, so I had to make do with not having been there. And I did a huge amount of research uh, on Moscow, read a lot of books, looked at a lot of maps. And also, I used uh, Google Maps, which with its street view now allows you to walk down a street and look up and look sideways. And you can basically be in Moscow at a point in time. And, and for me, the Moscow I was creating was not, you know, a travel walk in Moscow. It was a setting in which my characters uh, lived in a particular place, traveled a certain street to a, another, you know, to the embassy. Um, there was a safe house. So all I really had to do was create an authentic world that my characters lived in. And, um, and I think I, you know, I know that when the reviews came out, um, uh, everyone commented on how authentic it felt. <laughs> and, I, and I, of course, said, well, that's great because I've never been there. But if I could pull that off, then, you know, wonderful. Um, and, and, and as part of that, I did have the benefit of uh, there was a guy named John Barley, Ambassador John Barley. He was the first American ambassador to the Russian Federation. And he had been in Russia in 1985 in the embassy. And he very graciously read my book um, and he made a number of comments about it, uh, improving it in a number of, you know, small but important ways. Um, so it's important if you're going to do something where, in my case, I hadn't been there to get somebody who has been there and have them, you know, 
point out the errors because you're always going to make mistakes. Yeah, and I guess it would be that way about the culture as well because there's going to be even subtle differences in the way their manners are, the, the way they talk to each other and behave in, in other countries. Yeah, and, and in, in that case, what I did is I read the autobiographies of uh, a, num a number of uh, Soviet spies who defected, and I was able to pick up the, you know, their, their speech patterns, their thought patterns, um, and that became a really important part of the book because um, in my case, I had a, a double agent who was, you know, trying to exfiltrate um, a Soviet general. And so I had to deal, I had to sort of present this Soviet general. And um, and it, it was the autobiographies gave me a lot of insight into that character that I was able to then incorporate into the book. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it, it makes for an interesting story. You can go that way. Um, maybe you'll get a movie made out of it. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could have like James Bond, you know, something but better. Um, it, it, so if you had one book, if no one has, has heard of you, which I don't see, and if they haven't read any of your books, which book would you tell them to read? The most recent. Okay. Do you think do you think you get, <laughs> well, of course. Do, well, you know, but do you think each book you get to, to be a better writer? Does it, does it come across that way, do you think? Uh I, you know, every book is really hard. You have to push yourself hard. You can't, you can't allow yourself to coast. Um, and it's, you know, there's always the impulse to say I'm done when you're not done. Um, I, I would say this, the, the, the book that's out there now has some, some very subtle, um, character development that I really, I think is is wonderful and and I think it will appeal to a lot of people for that reason but it's also very interesting and and sort of um a call cleverly plotted book and 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 that I think is also makes it enjoyable some people have said oh it's your best book uh, and that you keep getting better and of course I love to hear that because we're always in so good only as good as our last book <laughs> yeah. um but on the other hand you know i like all my books and they're all and they're different um so but you know you know when i when i look at how people on amazon and other places rate them the one uh the mercenary the last one is probably the highest rated and we'll see what happens with this one um but it's always a matter of taste you know one person um yeah i had <laughs> One interesting email from a um, this is this came in about a month a year ago where the, the person um, had read my first two books um, and and he sent me and then he was reading the third book the coldest warrior and his email was and let me just read this he said sir I'm very much enjoying the coldest warrior. Please keep this up and do not return to the style of your first two books. <laughs> I still don't know why I finished them, even speed reading. Your heroes do nothing but sit around enjoying his gloomy self. <laughs> so, so, you know, yeah. I got that and, and of course I laughed, um, but obviously. You know, he was reading the third book. The time the third book book came out, and he liked it. And that was the only that was the only thing that mattered to me at the time. Mm. Do, you, do you like the way it is with social media and the interaction and stuff like that? Do you do you like to do that with with readers? Uh, well, the for the most part, um, it's sort of like Twitter is a one to many. Uh, I don't usually get inbound. Um, communication from on Twitter or Facebook, but uh, people do write me notes on my website and, um, and, and, and some of them, you know, very moving, you know, um, 
communication. People like the book who enjoyed a character, felt, you know, something worked for them personally. Or, you know, as is often, has happened to me twice, because I do happen to deal with guns and uh -oh. some military elements, people will point, point out where I'm wrong. And in one case, in The Coldest Warrior, I, uh, I gave the principal character a Glock 19. And this was 1975. And the writer uh, corrected me. And he said, well, the Glock wasn't invented in, until 1982. So you have that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I, if you're going to do historical fiction like I do you have to try and make sure you don't make a mistake like that yeah yeah because someone out there will read it that will be looking for something like that and will make sure you know yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so what, what is your website so people uh, listeners can can know where to find you it's uh, paulvidic.com p-a-u-l-v-i-d-i-c-h.com Great. Of course, we'll have that up on our websites as well, so they'll be able to find you with one click, you know, or in case they can't remember. So right. um, so how was COVID for you during, you know, it cuts you off from traveling and that, but does the stress going around in the country and the, you know, the COVID and all the weird stuff going on, does that sort of shut you down in writing or make it harder for you to write? Uh, no, I've had, I have an ability to sort of, put my mind in a place, um, which is what I've done for the last two years. So I've written two books over those two years. So it, it hasn't had an effect on my writing, um, either the amount of writing or even what I'm writing about. Um, obviously, it's been a very stressful two years for, you know, on, a, on the level of, you know, can we see our grandchildren, you know, are we able to travel to Rome once a year, which is what we used to do? And in those, you know, in, in each of those cases, the answer has been it's hard to see your family without feeling, you know, that you're in jeopardy. Certainly the holidays. Um, but I do think it's a stressful time in America right now. And um, it's, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that we will move on and, you know, return to some level of, of normalcy, um, but it is stressful for sure. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, you know, may, maybe with Russia doing what they do, um, maybe that'll draw people together somewhat. Well, as they say, a good war will distract everyone. <laughs> <laughs> certainly will, you know, that certainly will. Are you a spy yourself? Is this why you write about spies? Is this... No, I was never a spy. I was never recruited to be a spy. I never aspired to be a spy, although I was in the CIA building once as a reporter. I was drawn to this area of fiction because I had an uncle. Um, and I think we mentioned this on the last, when I was on your show the last time, who had been in the CIA. He was a bioweapons scientist who was murdered by the CIA in, uh, in sort of a very dark episode. Um, and I was curious about him and, you know, the, the, the loneliness of somebody who was doing secret work that he couldn't discuss with his wife and couldn't share his doubts about his work with his colleagues without seeming to betray the trust of those colleagues. And that, that character became an interesting character for me. And, uh, and that's how I got into the, the space. And, and frankly, it's a little bit like Graham Greene or Le Carre. They don't write it. They sort of, they use spies in their stories, but they really are love stories or they're stories about betrayal and trust. And it so happens that, or a particular class of Englishmen, but it so happens that the, the, the guardrails of their fiction are the guardrails of espionage, um, literature. Wow. That's interesting. You say that. So is it your intention to write, start out writing kind of a love story or something and build it around a situation? Well, the love stories are uh, are in each of the books, um, and it's in and they're the the emotional bonds between men and women or men and men are important to the novels, but they don't really they're not the story. Um, 
they're not what I'll call the triggering event. Uh, it, in Shakespeare, the triggering event in Hamlet is when um, old Hamlet, the ghost, says to young Hamlet, revenge my murder. And that sets in motion all of the events of the play. And in my case, in each of my novels, there's a triggering event at the beginning, uh, which sort of um, shapes the arc of the novel. And then within that arc, there are all these things going on between characters. It could be a love story, you know, various different things that are the complications that make the story rich. Um, but there is an arc that's defined by a plot. And then within it, there are all of these, you know, sub subplots and, and stories, um, yeah. love stories or otherwise. Boy, um, it, boy, see, you're a real writer. I wish I could do that. Um, now, your last book, how was the um, response that you got from The Coldest Warrior? And, and the story, not, not The Mercenary, but The Coldest Warrior, I guess, a couple books ago, and, and your uncle and that. How, how do you think people responded to that? Uh, I think they responded well to it. Uh, I think a lot of people liked it. Um, there were people who, who you know... Uh, sent me emails saying, you know, they, they'd had people, family members who, who took place in Fort Detrick who were there and they sort of understood what was going on at that time. You know, it got, you know, uh, it got starred reviews. It was well received critically. Um, I think there's, uh, you know, people like to be entertained and there's, there's a tradition of, movies and novels in which um, the some character, little character, big character, uh, a little bit like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, in which, you know, the, the, the little guy fights the corrupt, big bureaucracy. <laughs> and the, and the, the novel, The Coldest War, is a little bit of that. You know, and that's always an entertaining, uh, it's always an entertaining story. Oh yeah, but it's also that happens all the time. You know, it's, that's what Washington is all about. <laughs> that's the repeating story. It's a repeating story. You know, the, there's nothing. The only thing constant in Washington is sort of the, the immorality of the politicians <laughs> and the of the uh, of the bureaucrats. Oh, I'll say, never ends. But you know, that's what we've got. So. Well, it's always an interesting conversation having you on. Uh, we really appreciate it. Now, the book you are going to buy is called The Matchmaker, and there's a spy in Berlin. And the author is our was our guest, Paul Vidic. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Very enjoyable. I'm I'm happy to have been your guest. Thanks, Paul. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.